0: And uh, Acts chapter, where did I have you, 26? Yeah, you're in the wrong chapter. Uh, I want you in chapter 22. Uh, I'm I'm a little bit ahead of myself here. And uh, of course, I was out of town for a couple of weeks. And uh, so we're we're catching up a little bit. Paul is uh, speaking to the uh, Jewish mob. Uh, He went into the temple in chapter 21. Uh, Remember, he, he took what we believe was probably a Nazarite vow along with four other people. Because the rumor was that Paul was uh, 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 telling uh, Jewish people to abandon their roots and all of that. And uh, that it was okay for them to live like the Gentiles. And uh, it it wasn't true. And James said, let's just kind of set everybody at ease and let them know that's not the the way it is. So these four men have taken on this vow, join them. Um, and it, it' not necessarily a bad thing or a sinful thing. Paul had done something similar uh, when he was getting ready to leave Corinth, um, and he had taken a vow upon himself. Again, we believe it to be a Nazarite vow because it involves shaving the head, and that's one of the things you did at the end of such a vow. Uh, Paul was in the temple with them, uh, and uh, some, some uh, Jewish people from Asia, uh, most likely from Ephesus saw him and, and uh, they were the group that had rejected the gospel there. Um, and uh, things were very difficult in Ephesus for Paul, and, and we've talked about that many times. They saw him in the temple praying, and they, they, uh, they, they just cried out. Let's, let's just kind of go, go back to chapter 21 for just a moment. Uh, verse 27, when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews which were of Asia, when they saw him in the temple, stirred up all the people and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help this is the man that teacheth all men everywhere against the people. He's against Jewish people, and the law and this place, and further brought Greeks also into the temple, and hath polluted this holy place. For they had seen before with him in the city Trophimus and Ephesian, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. So they, uh, they made some assumptions which were not true. Uh, Paul didn't bring a Greek into the temple. Uh, and everything else they said about him was a lie. He wasn't preaching against Jewish people or the law uh, or against the temple. Uh, but uh, the mob just listened to the accusations. And uh, the cities moved together. Uh, they, they drew him out. In verse 31, they were about to kill him. There's been no trial. There's been no evidence presented. Uh, It was just an accusation. And uh, Paul's being roughed up uh, considerably by this mob. It's out of control. And we're probably talking hundreds and possibly thousands of people there. This temple complex was enormous. We know that on the day of Pentecost, Peter preached there and 3,000 people got saved. We know that in Acts chapters uh, three and four, uh, Peter and John preached there, and 5,000 men got saved. So this was a huge place. Um, the chief captain uh, in the, the uh, Tower of Antonia, which was affixed to the temple complex, uh, saw what was going on. He sent out a couple hundred soldiers. The, the Bible says he sent so, uh, centurions. That's uh, a, a, a captain over 100, and there were more than one. Uh, they got Paul out of there, and, and uh, the Bible says in verse uh, 32, they left beating of Paul. Uh, it's, a, it's a sad thing when we decide to ignore the law, ignore the word of God, take matters into our own hands. Uh, it's amazing uh, what we, we will end up doing. Uh, The captain has Paul bound with two chains in verse 33. Remember, they thought he was an Egyptian uh, that uh, was in in, in charge of a a group of assassins and so forth. And, uh, you know, the multitude wants him put away. uh, Verse number 36. Uh, Paul asked in verse 37, the captain said, can I speak with you? Very polite. May I speak unto thee. Um, he, he wasn't screaming and hollering. Uh, he wasn't talking about how unfair this was. He just very politely, uh, respectfully to this man, may I speak with thee? And that's where we find out what the captain actually thought. And Paul said, no. In verse 39, I'm a, a Jew of Tarsus. Very important point there. A city in Cilicia, citizen of no mean city. Uh, it's a wealthy city. It is actually a Roman city and it has very special rights and privileges and he said, I beseech thee, suffer me to speak unto the people. He said, he, he's very polite. Please let me talk to these people. When he'd given him license, Paul stood on the stairs, beckoned with a hand unto the people. And when there was made a great silence, he spake unto them in the Hebrew tongue. So uh, Paul is standing there. He is now, though he's bound with chains, um, he's got the authority of Rome standing all behind him. The soldiers have intervened and the people know you really don't want to mess with the Romans at this point. And uh, Paul's got permission to speak. He's standing up on, on this staircase and he beckons with the hand, maybe something like this, um, and just kind of let let them know, be calm, let's be quiet. And suddenly that, that, that mob turned into a multitude. They're now listening. They are as silent as can be. And he speaks to them in the Hebrew tongue. Uh, that is going to, that is going to grab their attention even farther because um, they, the accusation was that basically he's against all things Jewish. And here he is speaking in the Hebrew tongue. Now, this is an important point that we'll get to eventually. The captain of the guard, uh, we're going to find later in the next chapter, his, his name is Claudius Lysias. That name is important. I want you to remember that and I'll tell you why uh, when we get to the, uh, some verses to come. Uh, he is he is listening to Paul preach but Paul's preaching in Hebrew the captain is a Roman he would understand Latin the Roman tongue he would understand Greek which was the common tongue of business he might understand a word or two of Hebrew but Probably not enough to understand an entire sermon. So he's not going to quite know what Paul is going to preach to these people. That's kind of an important thought for later on. Just tuck that in the back of your mind. Um, Paul began, first of all, we talked about this in our last study together. In verses 1 through 5, Paul laid out his credentials to these people, reminding them for those who, and, and, and that did know and teaching those that were unaware of who he was. Um, he, he says, uh, verse three, I am verily a man which am a Jew, born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, yet brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel. Paul is name dropping. Gamaliel was the number one highest respected Jewish teacher at that time in Jewish history. He himself, Gamaliel, was a student of a man named Rabbi Hillel. And Hillel was considered at that time to have been the greatest of all rabbis that ever lived. And Paul said, I was, I, I was born in Tarsus, which is much to the north of here in another region, a region called Cilicia. He said, but I was taught right here at the feet of Gamaliel. Automatically, people are going to sit up a little straighter. They're going to see this, this guy is no low life. Um, he's not a criminal. And, and most of them didn't know why they were out there anyhow. They, they, you know, People came running. Remember, the whole city got in an uproar, and, and, and they're all coming in, and they don't really know what they were rioting over. And now they find out this, this guy's got an impressive background, taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers. Would you notice how he refers to the law. That's what we would call the Old Testament, particularly the first five books of the Old Testament. He calls it the perfect manner of the law of the fathers. In other words, he's saying, I'm holding the the word of God in high respect. So their accusation that he was anti-Jewish, he's already already gotten rid of that because he studied at the feet of Gamaliel, um, that he's anti the law He speaks of it with great reverence, uh, a great honoring of words, and was zealous toward God, as ye all are this day. He recognized there were some people in, in that crowd that had wrong intentions, the ones who accused him. They lied about him. That reveals the wrongness of their intentions. Everything they said was a falsehood, but most of those people they, they were zealous toward God. They were there at the temple, uh, possibly at the hour of prayer, it does not say, but they were, they were there at the temple worshiping Jehovah God. They were sincere people. Today, there are observant Jews, and then there are what are known as secular Jews. Um, there, are a lot of people, there are a lot of people in our federal government that are Jewish, Chuck Schumer, is jewish i don't know if you knew that the late diane feinstein was jewish but they were secular jews an observant jew you might see them uh on fridays as the sabbath begins the men will will have the yarmulke on their head how many have have seen that um i was in an airport recently and i saw some young men uh probably in their late teens early 20s and uh they they uh They were dressed very conservatively, black suits, white shirts, which means that they were probably more of the orthodox persuasion. How many know what a zitzit is? I preached a sermon one Sunday night, and they each had a uh, uh, zitzit on the side, uh, uh, fastened to their belt and so forth. An observant Jew is one that does their best uh, to go to synagogue, to observe the Sabbath, Uh, to to observe the high holy days. The only thing they can't do is offer a sacrifice because there's no temple, there's no place to do that. Uh, Paul is recognizing these people are observant Jews. They've stopped stopped in the middle of a day, wherever they might work, to come to the temple to worship God. Paul is addressing them, he's showing them tremendous respect. These are the people that were beating him. Have you ever heard the phrase "You you gather more flies with honey than you do vinegar"? anybody ever heard that? Uh, you realize Paul could have got up there and he could have slammed them into the ground. Uh, you, you beat me. Uh, you, you know you're all, you're trying to kill me and, and uh, you know uh, you're, you're you're violating the law. You're this. You're a bunch. He could have done all of that, and the uh, the audience would have been been done. But, but he's being very respectful. You're zealous. I was zealous toward God as y'all are. I persecuted this way. That's what they referred to these believers in Jesus as this way. And that phrase comes up over and over again in the book of Acts. Um, uh, unto death. He said, I, I, really, I was really zealous. Binding and delivering into prisons both men and women as also the high priest doth bear me witness. The high priest, we don't know if he was on the scene uh, on that given day, we know he'll show up the next day. Uh, but Paul said the high priest can can back me up on this. He's doing some more name dropping here. Okay, that he's he's really legitimate. Paul's letters to Damascus were signed by the high priest, and all the estate of the elders from whom also I received letters unto the brethren went to Damascus to bring them which were there bound unto Jerusalem for to be punished. So he's laid out his his credentials. Now he talks about his conversion. Uh, in, in verse number six, it came to pass that as I made my journey was come nigh unto Damascus about noon. Suddenly there shone from heaven a great light round about me. And I fell unto the ground and heard a voice saying unto me, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And I answered, who art thou, Lord? Um, as a Jewish man, as a man who understood their scriptures, he's, he's recognizing what's happening to him is somehow miraculous. It's noon, okay? In that part of the world, how many have ever been to the Middle East? Anybody here ever been there? Uh, At noon, that's when the temperatures are soaring up to like 104, uh, and uh, shade is is, uh, very, very hard to find. Uh, It's a blinding brightness there uh, in the daytime, and suddenly there's this light that's brighter than that. Uh, the one who made the sun will always outshine the sun. And it shines and he hears this voice and the voice addresses him personally. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? By the way, God always saves individuals. He always saves individuals. And God knew exactly who he was and exactly what he was doing. And, and Saul, though he did not yet know that this was the Lord Jesus, he recognized this was the Lord His background taught him that. He said, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom thou persecutest. That was was Saul's whole life. Acts 9, he was breathing out threatening and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. Uh, Most of us don't realize this, but Saul of Tarsus was a contemporary of Jesus. They lived at the same time. And because Saul lived in uh, the Holy Land, and was centered, it appears, in the city of Jerusalem, Saul was no stranger to this Jesus of Nazareth. When the Pharisees, we see them all throughout the Gospels coming to Jesus, trying to entrap him uh, in words and so forth, I do not believe we are wrong in assuming that on some of those cases, cases Saul of Tarsus was there. Um. He he knew who Jesus of Nazareth was. He may have been one of the voices, though he was not on the Sanhedrin as far as we know. uh, He may have been one of the voices in the mob that day in front of Pontius Pilate, saying, away with this man, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. Remember, Paul was zealous unto God, persecuting this way. He would have known who Jesus was. He would have known what the Jews believed to be a rumor that he had risen from the dead. And it wasn't a rumor. It was the absolute truth. Amen. Um, uh, Saul of Tarsus would have been an eyewitness of some of those events. So we, we got to understand that, that uh, he, he was exposed to more than we realize. He said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest when they that were with me saw indeed the light and were afraid, but they heard not the voice of him that spake to me. It's interesting how God could do that. How God could do that. That everybody else was there. They saw this light that was outshining the brightness of the sun, um, and, uh, but, but they, didn't, they, they, they just didn't get any of the rest of it. It's amazing how God can find you where you are and God can speak to you no matter where you are. Uh, it always amazes me that, that uh, I can preach a sermon and the Holy Spirit will speak to one person about something specific. He'll speak to somebody else in the same sermon about something different. And neither one contradicts each other. It's just God knows where we are and what we need. And it also amazes me that sometimes even in a service, where God is, God's word is proclaimed, there are some people that it doesn't appear they're hearing the voice of God at all. It's like whoosh, right over their head or it's in one ear right out of the other or they're so disinterested that they're just sound asleep. Um, I, I, I'm not sure how that happens, but God's speaking specifically to this one man. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? That's a good question for every Christian to ask every day. What do you want me to do, Lord. What do you want me to do? Um, The Lord said to me, Arise and go into Damascus, and there it shall be told thee of all things which are appointed for thee to do. Now remember, he's in front of a crowd of probably thousands who moments ago were were an unruly mob. They they had some of his blood on their knuckles from beating this man. Uh, He's standing up on these stairs surrounded by these Roman soldiers who don't understand probably a word that he's saying because he's speaking in Hebrew. And this crowd is in rapt attention to him. The Jews believed in miracles. So when he's talking about a miracle, uh, he's got their attention, and uh, they're probably familiar with the name of Jesus of Nazareth because we know that the uh, Christians uh, filled Jerusalem with that doctrine. Uh, of the resurrection of Christ. So they're still listening. Then when I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of them that were with me, I came into Damascus. We'd ask ourselves the question the last time we were here, what does the Lord have to do to get our attention? What does God have to knock us off our high horse in some way before we'll listen to him? Now remember, at this time in Saul's life, he's blind. And he has no idea that he'll ever see again. No idea whatsoever that that's going to happen. So he's led by the hand into Damascus. They search out this man. God had told him in Acts 9, there's a man named Ananias, told him where he lived. One Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good report of all the Jews which dwelt there. Again, Paul is lacing his message to them uh, with the truth that... uh, the Jewish law is not contrary to Jesus Christ. It pictures Jesus Christ. It points to Jesus Christ and, and so forth. Uh, he said, uh, he, this man, verse 13 came unto me and stood, said unto me, brother Saul, when he called him brother Saul, that was not a, that was not generally a Jewish or Hebrew greeting. That was generally a Christian greeting. Um, I believe that Saul got saved on the road to Damascus. Um, The Bible does not say specifically where he got saved, but I believe he was saved because of how uh, Ananias uh, addressed him. Brother Saul, receive thy sight! In the same hour, I looked up upon him. What a miracle! What a miracle! Um, God is confirming to this man, Saul of Tarsus, that what happened him on that road wasn't a dream. Uh, it, It wasn't a hallucination. It was nothing like that. It was a reality. He had been blind, literally, physically blind. And now he, he he miraculously has his sight back. Uh, verse 14, we're going to get part of a conversation here that is not revealed in Acts chapter 9. Remember, I've told you many times that when we're reading events in, in the Bible and people are interacting and they're talking back and forth, we're getting snippets of that conversation. There was probably much more said God is just placing in his word the part of the conversation that he wants us to know. And that is true here. He, Ananias, said, the God of our fathers hath chosen thee, that thou shouldest know his will. By the way, he wants you to know his will as well. And see that just one, that's the Lord Jesus, and should hear, shouldest hear the voice of his mouth. For thou shalt be his witness unto, I have this circle of my Bible, all men... This is important for what Paul's gonna say later of what thou hast seen and heard. We are going to all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That means the one that's down and out. One of our ladies has been texting me, and I, I made mention of how I keep gospel tracks in the, the pocket of uh, my driver's side door. Uh, I always try to keep some loose uh, bills uh, there in my car so that if I happen to stop at an intersection and there's somebody there, and there's a lot of them now, aren't there? Um, I can at least give them a little little bit to help out. Uh, you say, well, are they going to go use it to, to, to buy drugs or buy booze? That's not, that's not up for me to determine. Uh, I I see somebody with a need, if I can help out, my intentions are right. If they do something wrong with it, that's their fault, but I'm going to do right. But I always give a gospel tract. Well, one of our ladies took that to heart and uh, the route that she drove, evidently, there's always a a lady standing there with a cardboard sign. And uh, so one of our ladies not only gave a gospel tract and a little bit of money, but took the time to talk to her. Did you know those are real people? Did you know that some of them have some heartbreaking stories of how they ended up on a corner like that? That's the case. Uh, came back later and had a coat because it was cold to give to that individual and has been going back building a relationship. By the way, I want you to pray about this. Uh, it's hopeful that in the next couple of weeks, that lady that stands on a street corner with a sign saying, can you help me please? And she's got a story. she got a heartbreaking story is planning to come visit church. Uh, we're to go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. That means the people that, that meet across the street in the mosque. They need to hear about Jesus. By the way, do you know they believe in Jesus? Okay, they don't believe he's the savior. They, they don't believe that he was resurrected, but they believe uh, that, that uh, Jesus was a real person. They believe in Moses. They believe in Abraham. Did you know that? Uh, so we got, we got to understand those people need Jesus too. And and Paul's getting this message from Ananias, you're to be his witness unto all men of what thou hast seen and heard. And now, why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized, wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Don't let this confuse you. Baptism didn't wash away his sins, calling on the name of the Lord does. Uh, It is Paul who wrote, look at Romans 10 13. Romans 10 13. If you use the Romans road in your soul winning presentation, as as I do quite often, uh, I always end up in Romans chapter 10. The Bible says in verse 11, for the scripture saith, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there's no difference between the Jew and the Greek for the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Did you notice baptism's not there? In fact, baptism's not in this chapter at all. It's all about placing your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter number 1. In his introduction to the church at Corinth, to the letter that he's writing to them, um, he says in verse 13, "Is Christ divided, remember they were, they were divided over everything. Who's your favorite preacher and all that kind of stuff? What's your favorite fast food restaurant if they live today? Uh, He says, uh, 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 verse 13, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? or Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius. Lest any should say that I had baptized in mine own name. Baptism was an identification. When we get baptized, we are identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of whom? jesus christ okay he said and i baptized also the household of stephanus beside i know not whether i baptized any other verse 17 is an interesting verse for christ sent me not to baptize but to preach the gospel not with wisdom of words lest the cross of christ should be made of none effect does paul believe that baptism is unimportant no because when the philippian jailer got saved uh, in his household paul baptized all of them that night Uh, But Paul is differentiating between the the, uh, baptism and the gospel. It is the gospel that saves us. It is baptism which identifies us with that and testifies of our faith in Christ. So uh, Paul does that, verse 17. It came to pass that when I was coming into Jerusalem, even while I prayed in the temple, I was in a trance. This is brand new information that wasn't revealed in chapter 9. He said, I prayed in the temple, I was in a trance like Peter was in Acts 10, and saw him, that's the Lord, saying unto me, make haste and get thee quickly out of Jerusalem, for they will not receive thy testimony concerning me. Now, remember, there's, there's a bunch of people listening to him speaking in the Hebrew tongue. Um, he's talking about how he met Jesus uh, on the road to Damascus. He's given his credentials. He's given his conversion. Um, he, he's, he's now talking about his commission from the Lord. Um, and, and these are people moments ago were beating him up. They're listening intently and, uh, you know, he's, he's got them there. Uh, probably he's hopeful, but he says, uh, way back then when I just first got saved, the Lord came and said, "'May case get thee quickly out of Jerusalem, "'for they will not receive thy testimony concerning me.'" And I said, "'Lord, they know that I imprisoned "'and beat in every synagogue them that believed. And "'When the blood of thy martyr Stephen was shed, "'I also was standing by and consenting unto his death, "'and kept the raiment of them that slew him.'" Paul is not necessarily arguing with the Lord, saying, "'God, you're wrong.'" Uh Paul is 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 just having a conversation here, the Lord. And Jesus said, you need to get out of this city and you need to get out of here fast. They're not gonna receive your testimony and so forth. And Paul is in his heart, his intentions are right because we know he had a burden for his people. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Um, and, and, and Paul's having a hard time believing that his people... Would now mistreat him. He forgot what he used to do. Okay, uh, but but he's saying, "Lord, they'll know who I am. They know what I was all about." They knew that I was the leading voice uh, of beating and imprisoning uh, these believers and, and how I went to Damascus you know, to do the same thing. And when Stephen was stoned, I was the guy putting my stamp of, of, of approval. They'll know that I was that guy, and now they'll know that something's changed in me, and they're going to want to know what changed me. I remember when I got saved as a, as a teenager, 14 and a half years old, I got saved two weeks before I started high school. We just moved. So it was a new high school. It was a large high school, 2,500 students. There were 1,008 seniors in my, or or, I'm sorry, uh, sophomores in my sophomore class. I was excited about getting saved. I've I've been concerned about eternity since I was in elementary school, fifth or sixth grade. And now I was saved, and I thought it was such wonderful news. I thought everybody would want to know how to be saved. Did anybody else have that view when you first got saved? Because it, it, it absolutely made perfect sense. Um, it, it was a wonderful message. It was a message about how much God loved us and what he did for us. And, and it was assurance of salvation, not a man I hope have enough good works outweigh the bad ones and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I thought everybody wants to get saved. And I, I wasn't a real smart soul winner. Um, I, I had a lot of zeal, but not according to knowledge. Um, and I went in, I hit that high school running for Jesus, just telling everything. I, I was telling people stuff that even surprised God. Um, I was a brand new, cra- anybody else, in, Did you, were you like that? Anybody else was like, oh, thank you, brother, uh, oh, uh, I, I, um, oh, boss, I, Senior moments there. Um, and, and I was just and and I our church had chick tracks and, and I always had my pockets stuffed with them and all that kind of stuff. What I found out is nobody wanted it. In fact, it kind of made me a target. It made me an object of ridicule. And I was already kind of that because I was undersized. I had moved from the farm to the city. And I dressed like a farm kid in a city school. Um, I was a nerd on top of that with big thick glasses with electrical tape here where they had broken and all of that. But I was surprised that nobody wanted to know uh, about Jesus because to me that was the greatest thing. I think that's what Paul was saying here. They know what I was. And now they see a change. They're going to want to know about that change. And he said unto me, verse 21, this is the Lord still speaking to Paul Uh, This is going on in Acts chapter 9. He said unto me, depart. And here's the key phrase. For I will send thee far hence unto where? The Gentiles. Okay? Paul was known as the apostle to the Gentiles as Peter was the apostle to the circumcision or to the Jews. Now we know from our study of the book of Acts, where was the first place generally Paul went in every city he went to? The synagogue it was a place like Philippi that did not have a synagogue, he went to where he knew the Jewish people would pray, usually beside uh, a stream, some type of running water. That was, that was their custom. He always went to the Jews. Uh, in Romans, he says that, you know, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Remember in our study of the book of Acts uh, up to this point, even the Jewish believers, including some of the apostles, they had it in their mind. The gospel was for the Jews. Jesus was Jewish. He died on the cross according to the Jewish scriptures, and they were the chosen people of God. And so in their mind, The gospel was just for them. On the day of Pentecost, the 3,000 people that got saved were either Jewish people by blood, or the Bible says they were proselytes from various different uh, uh, backgrounds and regions. So they had it in their mind. And so when Philip went up to Samaria, the Samaritans, half Jew, half Gentile by blood, they had their own pagan Version of religion that sort of mimics some of Judaism and so forth. And Philip went up and began to preach the gospel and they got saved. The apostles back in Jerusalem said that just can't be. So, who did they send? Do you remember from Acts 8? Who did they send up to to Samaria to uh, verify Philip's ministry? They sent, I've heard Barnabas, I've heard Paul. Both answers wrong. Peter. They sent Peter up. And uh, when Peter got there and he saw what God had done, he laid hands on them. And the Lord gave a very miraculous sign, uh, and they began to speak with tongues. We know tongues wasn't babbling, rolling on the ground, drooling. It was a known language. And that was to the Jewish people a sign that God's granted repentance to the Gentiles. Then Peter, in Acts chapter 10, went to Cornelius. What was his nationality? He was Roman Okay, He was a Roman centurion, but he was a devout man, uh, one that was very kind to the Jewish people, a searching man. God sent Peter. Uh, Peter preached to Cornelius and his entire household. They got saved, and the gift of the Holy Ghost was given to them. Uh, More than likely, they also spoke with tongues, that outward visible thing. And Peter went back and told them in Jerusalem what happened. And at first, they were having a hard time, but he said, The same Holy Spirit that fell on us in the upper room fell on them. And then they began to accept, okay, God's granted repentance to the Gentiles too. So understand, even the early church had a hard time with that. Now Paul's speaking to the Jews, not converted Jews. These are unbelieving Jews. And he says, uh, Jesus said, Depart, for I will send thee far hence unto the Gentiles. Oh my goodness. Did he open a can of worms with that one? Because the animosity between the Jews and the Gentiles was very, very strong. The Gentiles had persecuted the Jews for hundreds and hundreds of years. From 586 BC, it was first the Babylonians and then the Persians, then the Greeks. The Greek empire uh, broke up and between the Syrians and the Egyptian part of uh, the remnants of Alexander's empire, they were persecuted horribly. Then Rome came along and all of that. And in their mind... They didn't have a a good view of the Gentiles at all. They considered the Gentiles to be what creature? Dogs. By the way, dogs weren't highly valued in those days. You know, your puppy is blind, lame, has leukemia and all of that, but you're still taking him to the vet and paying thousands of dollars to keep that dog alive for one more day. We love our pets, right? In those days, they didn't want dogs around. Okay, uh, Egypt worshiped cats. That's why they fell as an empire. Um, some of you will figure that out later on. Um, <clears throat> so Paul said, he's sending me the Gentiles, verse 22, and they gave them audience unto this word. They listened well. They listened well. They listened how this man who was raised in their faith and a teacher of their faith and a defender of their faith, met Jesus on the road to Damascus and it transformed his life. Um, but now he finds out that this Jesus sent him to the Gentiles and then and they gave him audience unto this word and then lifted up their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth for it is not fit uh, that he should live. They wanted him killed. That To them, the, them was fighting words. They, they were infuriated. Uh, by that. And as they cried out and cast off their clothes, they're, they're, they're taking their coats off again. Remember when Stephen was stoned, the ones who did the act of stoning took off their coats. Like it would be like me taking off my suit jacket um, and and so forth. The temple mount uh, was, had paving stones all around, but it wouldn't have had stones to throw. Uh, that type of thing. So they have cast off their clothes and they threw dust into the air. Can you imagine seven thousand people just reaching down, finding dirt anywhere they could find it, and throwing it up in the air? Uh, they're all they're all they're screaming. They're they're enraged, and the multitude has turned back into a mob. A mob is never a good thing. A mob never accomplishes anything positive. Be careful that you don't become part of a mob. The chief captain commanded him to be brought into the castle. He said, it's not safe for you to be out here. Remember, he doesn't understand a word that Paul said, more than likely because Paul's speaking in the Hebrew tongue. Um, So the chief captain brings him in and bade that he should be examined by scourging that he might know wherefore they cried so against him. So this chief captain is going to have Paul scourged uh, it says tried by scourging or examined by scourging. Um, in modern terminology, they were going to torture him until he told them the truth. You know, um, various cultures have have different ways to do that. Um, just just horrible things they do because uh, a human being has only certain limits of how much pain and anguish that they can endure. And the idea is we'll just, we'll scourge them. Scourging is what they did to Jesus before crucifixion. If you read the, uh, the accounts from uh, historians like Josephus, who lived at the time of Christ, who would have been alive uh, during this time, uh, many times a man that was scourged never survived um that that cat of nine tails it it could if if that that whip wrapped around the head it could it could gouge out eyes uh some men were completely disemboweled by that and they would just keep it up they could only go to 39 lashes like that uh that no more than 40 so they kept it at 39 just in case they lost count somewhere along the line Uh, and the whole idea was you you'd beat him one or two times and said are you going to tell us what we want to know And if not, they would just keep going until the guy finally broke down and and confessed or or revealed who his his comrades were and so forth. That's what they're going to do to Paul. Okay, they don't know what he just said. They don't know what the message was. They just know that whatever he said has enraged this mob of people and they want this man dead. So the centurion is, he's got to be thinking he must be, a criminal after all. So they're going to examine him by scourging. And verse 25, and as they bound him with thongs, leather straps, um, sometimes a scourging took place. They would tie the victim's wrists and ankles together. And they would hoist him up, and he'd actually be dangling in the air, unable to put his feet down, and they would scourge him that way. Sometimes uh, he was bound with thongs, and they put his hands over, like we would consider it, like a telephone pole, a smaller one like that, uh, and fast him in place. And he'd be somewhat bent over um, that. They had different ways to do that, so they're bounding Paul. binding Paul. He's already been beaten by a mob. He's now uh, about to be scourged. And Paul said unto the centurion that stood by, he just asked a question. Is it lawful for you to scourge a man that is a Roman and uncondemned? He's just asking a question. Because you see, according to Roman law, you weren't allowed to scourge a Roman citizen. That was considered cruel and unusual punishment, and Roman citizens were exempt from those things. If a Roman was con- committed, had committed murder, some capital offense that brought the death penalty, a Roman citizen could not be crucified. A Roman citizen would die uh, by a very quick means. It would be either poisoned, uh, thrown off a cliff, Uh, beheaded, something like that. But it could not be anything that would be drawn out and prolonged in a torturous type way. So Paul's just asking this centurion that's standing there, is it lawful for you to scourge a man that is a Roman and uncondemned? He's had no trial, no verdict has been given. When the centurion heard that, he went and told the chief captain, saying, take heed what thou doest, for this man's a Roman. Uh, we need to be careful here. This guy's a Roman. Um, do you understand they've already bound him? They've already begun the process. They haven't scourged him yet, but they've already crossed the line. That means that they've broken Roman law, okay? Then the chief captain came and said unto him, tell me, art thou a Roman? And he said, "Yea." I like to think he said, yet? Yes, sir, I am that chief captain's now in a world of trouble. If his, because he gave the, the order, if his superiors found out that he's done that, um, he's, if Paul goes to anybody in the Roman government and says, this guy, Claudius Lysias, uh, uh, w- w- was going to scourge me and I'm a Roman, um, he's in he's a lot of trouble. And the, and the chief captain answered and said, with a great sum Obtained I this freedom. In the early days of the Roman Empire, the Roman citizens were those that lived in Italy. Rome, of course, being their capital. And like many ancient cultures, they believed that, you know, the gods had chosen them. And, and uh, if you study, you know, Romulus and Remus and all that kind of stuff in the founding of Rome, uh, they, they, they had that mythological look on things. But as the Roman Empire began to expand, Um, you know, uh, they, they, they realized they needed more people, uh, to support the cause and they offered Roman citizenship. Um, there was a man named Claudius Lysias. He was the emperor, I'm sorry, uh, Emperor Claudius, uh, who's mentioned in the book of Acts. We've already looked at his name. He was the Roman emperor at this time. Nero's about to replace him. Okay. Claudius and his wife, Messalina, found a way to raise money for the Roman Empire. Their armies uh, took a lot of money to feed them and uh, uh, equip them and so forth. And so they sold Roman citizenship. And it cost a lot of money. But if you, if you had the right amount of money, you could buy citizenship. Sort of like in Martin Luther's day, the Pope said, you can buy these people, pieces of paper, they're called indulgences, and uh, depending on how much money you pay, that's how many sins are taken off your account. So if you get $50, you get $50 worth of sins forgiven. If you have $100, you get even more. And they might have even have had a buy one, get one free coupon somewhere in there. That is why Martin Luther made his break uh, when he saw that they were, uh, by the way, the Pope was doing that to build a new uh, palace for himself. Uh, and so forth. And Martin Luther said that sins aren't forgiven that way. And he, he looked to scriptures and found the just shall live by faith um, and so forth. So, this Claudius and his wife, they're raising money for Rome. And this Roman centurion uh, purchased his freedom. Look over to chapter 23 and uh, verse 26. This same chief captain is writing uh, unto a governor who's going to take over Paul's case. We'll get. To the details of that uh in another week or so and he he uh you know in our letters we say uh you know uh, dear george uh and we 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 write our thing and then we say uh your friend thomas in those days they started out giving the writer's name first okay thomas unto the most noble george something like that. So that if George read the name Thomas and decided (laughs) I'm not reading anything he's going to say and just hits delete on his email button, um, we could do it. But, But so his name went first and notice his name is Claudius Lysias. He bought his freedom under Emperor Claudius. And so his name now, his own name, he's adopted as a Roman citizen. He's now going by the name Claudius because Claudius enabled him to become free. That was an important thing. That was a big thing in those days. Uh, they, they were oftentimes exempt from paying taxes. Uh, they were exempt, as we said, from extreme forms of the death penalty and so forth. So the chief captain back in 22, 28 answered with a great sum obtained by this freedom. And Paul said, but I was freeborn. I was born a free Roman. Uh, the city of Tarsus was a, was a, a Roman city. It was, if you, we might call it a royal city. It had been granted that as a favor by one of the former emperors. The people there were granted automatic citizenship. This would have been going back several generations. And uh, so Paul's, Paul's father uh, was granted this Roman citizenship. We're not sure how far it went back in his lineage. And so he was born a free Roman. Even though he's of Jewish nationality, he was a free Roman. So Paul's telling you this, verse twenty-nine. Then straightway, that means immediately, they departed from him, which should have examined him. The dude that was supposed to do the whipping, man, he was out of there. Uh, if he'd, have, do you realize if he'd have made one stroke, he'd have broken Roman law, and he could possibly be given the death penalty for for scourging a Roman citizen. They're gone. The chief captain also was afraid after he knew that he was a Roman and because he had bound him. On the morrow, because he, the centur, the chief captain, would have known the certainty whereof he was accused of the Jews. And we're not going to find it out by torturing the man, But but this captain at least had some sense about him and dignity. He wants to know what the accusation is. He's finally going to give Paul his trial. He loosed him from his bands, commanded the chief priest and all their council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. Paul's no longer bound with the thongs. Um, it, it appears they take the chains off, but understand from chapter, uh, chapter 22 to the end of the book of Acts, Paul will never be a free man again. He'll never be a free man again. That's no longer a part of his life. But some of the greatest messages that Paul left behind him came while he was a prisoner of Rome. The book of Philippians, the book of Ephesians, the book of Colossians, the book of Philemon, the books of Timothy and Titus. Some of the most treasured scriptures that we have as New Testament believers, uh, Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit while he was a prisoner of Rome. God's word is not bound and Paul didn't let this stop him Uh, he never got his he never won his freedom Uh, he was ignored for years but still a prisoner but he stayed faithful to Christ because he you see his freedom wasn't dependent on what happened out there or what those out there did to him his real freedom was on the inside because Jesus Christ had made him free from the bondage of sin and with that we need to stop father thank you for the testimony of this man